0: Bismillah ar rahim alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wa salatu salam ala abdillahi wa rasulih, nabiina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in, amma ba'd. ta'ala today, we're going to start a topic within a topic. That means inshaAllah ta'ala we're going to start a new topic But that that topic is It still falls within The topic that we have been covering uh, So far So so far we've been talking about Usul al-fiqh And the topic today is slightly different But still within the General category Of Usool al-fiqh or the or the associated sciences around it What we're going to talk about today is a science which is known as al-qawaid al-fiqhiyya Now in English that is often translated as juristic maxims But in this case, I actually think the explanation of what it means is probably better than trying to translate it. Al-Qawaid is the plural of qaida qaida and a is a a rule or you could say also a principle or a maxim or any of these other words you want to use but let's use the word, it's, it's a rule And so, what we're going to study today are a collection of rules or a collection of principles. And these qawaid, they are described as being fiqhiyya. Fiqhiyya. Meaning that they are rules relating to al-fiqh. And the meaning of Ka'idah of, uh, of here is basically something which is encompassing. It can be applied to every single ruling. So what we're looking at is, we're looking at a collection of rules or a collection of principles which can be applied across all of the fiqh rulings of Islam That doesn't mean there aren't exceptions Because the Arabs have a very famous statement For every rule there is an exception however Generally, these rules will give you the biggest, like they say, bang for your buck. You know, the biggest amount, the smallest amount of work and the maximum amount of knowledge because they can be applied pretty much across the board. Now, it makes sense to ask, how does this fit into usul al-fiqh? And the answer is, it does and it doesn't. If we look at this book that we're going to study today, which is Manvuma Al Qawaid Al Fiqhiya, it's a poem of Al Qawaid Al Fiqhiya by Imam Abdurrahman Ibn Nasr al Sa'di, who we started studying his tafsir. What we see from this book is, Half of this book has a foot in usul and the other half has a foot in fiqh. From the point of view of these principles being general and not being specific to any particular mas'ala, any particular fiqhi issue, they fit within the science of usul because they don't deal with specific. Uh, issues. They deal with generalizations. At the same time, these are much more fiqh orientated. They are much, you know, the purpose of learning them is not simply for you to be able to go into the texts and be able to extract rulings. These are more like rulings themselves, but they are general in application So if you kind of think of this, I like to think of this as a bridge between the science of usul al-fiqh and the application of that science, which is fiqh itself Usul al-fiqh is general It gives you tools with which you can understand generalized concepts It doesn't give you the ruling on marriage, it doesn't give you the ruling on divorce, it doesn't tell you what happens if you say talaq to your wife three times. It tells you what to do, or how to extract general rulings from the Quran and the Sunnah. What is a command? What is a prohibition? How do we understand that? In this text, we're going to see what is kind of a bridge, and if I were to draw al-qawaid al-fiqhiyya as a science, I would draw it as a circle overlapping both usul and fiqh. Because elements of this are very usuli; They're very much related to usul al-fiqh. They're very general and talking about overriding concepts. But at the same time, there's very much a it's very much a fiqh and uh, there's very much a, a focus on applying that and the application of that is fiqh it's not usul usul doesn't apply those things when we apply them to particular issues we call this fiqh so what i think here is this kind of sits in a gap between usul al fiqh and between fiqh itself it's not quite fiqh because it's general and it's not specific, and it's not quite usul because it's very much about application and rulings so it kind of sits in the middle many scholars teach it alongside usul al-fiqh I don't think think anyone considers it to be part of usul al-fiqh I don't think anyone puts it inside of the box which is usul al-fiqh but people kind of teach it alongside Usool al-Fiqh, and before starting Fiqh itself, and that's exactly what we're planning to do here, because inshallah we want to start some some Fiqh in the next uh, in the next term or in the next module. And before we do that, it would be nice to kind of have this bridge that takes us from Usool, which we haven't, of course, finished, but we have you know we began and sort of brings us across the gap into fiqh itself but still while being very general while being very very general and while being very um, not being so not being so detailed and specific about particular issues and the basis for this science is something important which we will learn in Usul al-Fiqh, which is very, very important. I personally think it is something that is misunderstood by a lot of people, which is something we call al istiqra And I have no idea how to translate al istiqra into English, so I'm going to explain it to you. But it is the concept that you go through the whole of the Qur'an and the Sunnah and you test a particular rule or you develop a particular rule, you find a particular rule and you go through the whole of the Qur'an and the Sunnah and essentially what you do is you start to categorize things into boxes and you come out with some rules that work across the board and al istiqra is an extremely strong evidence. And as we're gonna study in Usul al-Fiqh later on, it's a very strong evidence. And this is why people will say, what is your evidence, for example, that Tawheed is divided into three categories? As again, we talk about how we're gonna integrate Aqeedah into this. We're not gonna separate Aqeedah. We're not gonna teach Usul and not, not teach. We're gonna put these two together. Somebody says, what is the evidence that Tawheed is divided into three categories? Where is the ayah in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Tawheed is three? Tawheed al Rububiya, wa Tawheed al uluhiya wa Tawheed al wa al-Sifat. Where is the hadith in which the Prophet taught this? We say the evidence for this is al-Istiqra'a. You go through every ayah in the Quran, you will not find more than three categories of Tawheed. Go through every hadith in the Sunnah and categorize tawheed. Put tawheed. Every time you find something relating to Tawheed, put it in a box. You will not come out with more than three boxes ever. One will be called tawhid al rububiyyah one will be called Tawheed al ulohiya one will be called tawhid al-Asma' al-Sifat. If you wish, you might come up with two boxes. Tawheed al rububiyyah and asma sifat together. I mean, al-Tawheed al ilmi the Tawheed of Knowledge. And the Tawheed of worshipping Allah alone, al-Tawheed al-Amali. Ultimately, al-Istiqra is important. Because what it allows us to do, it allows us to categorize things in a way that pleases Allah. Because it's not right for me just to turn around and say, you know, I think that there are five basic principles in the Sharia, and these five basic principles are one, two, three, four, five. But if I can back up my statement with al istiqra I can say, I can tell you that you go through the Quran and the Sunnah from the beginning to the end, and you will not find more than a tiny number of exceptions to this basic rule, then this is an evidence. And this allows us to come up with principles. It allows us to come up with rules. It allows us to be able to Understand the Sharia in a very concise and very effective way. So, there is a benefit in going through the Sharia and categorizing things, putting things into boxes, and developing principles and rules. However, this in reality is not for everyone to do, and it, it's not needed for everyone to do it. This is something that has been done by the scholars since the earliest times. And they have written these principles and these rules in their books. And they've gathered them together for us. And they've agreed upon their validity. Because I can go through the Qur'an and the Sunnah and come out with a different number of boxes than you come out with. But when you back that up with consensus, you backed that up with agreement of the scholars. Now you have a very strong proof. You have al which means that you've read through from qara'a yaqra'u, any meaning to read. I've read through the whole of the Qur'an. And the whole of the Qur'an matches this rule. And there's nothing in the Qur'an that goes against this rule. In fact, everything supports this rule and the sunnah also supports this rule. That's an evidence. But when I back that evidence up with ijma', and I say, and the scholars unanimously united upon this rule, they agreed about this rule, despite their differing in the issues, despite them differing about whether this, you know, for example, whether three talaq in one counts as one or counts as three. They differed over it. But the general principle, the general rule, that we're going to talk about, or the rules we're going to talk about today, by and large, are rules upon which there is consensus among the scholars. And there's very little differing among them in these general rules. For example, the basic necessities with which, or which Islam came to preserve and protect, that Islam came to preserve and protect people's religion and Islam came to preserve and protect people's intellect and Islam came to preserve and protect people's lives and Allah came to preserve and protect people's honour and Allah came to preserve and protect people's wealth All of the rules in Islam Every single thing that is haram Can be categorised into Protecting one of those five things. Why is it haram to leave Islam? Why can't I have freedom? Why can't I just become Christian? Or Buddhist? Because Islam came to preserve people's religion. Why can't I kill somebody? If somebody did a crime, why can't I take a sword and kill them? Because Islam came to preserve people's lives. Why can't I steal? What's wrong with stealing? Because Islam came to preserve people's wealth. What's wrong with Zina? If the two people agree to it? Why should they, I mean, like they, be, like they tell you on Facebook these days, why should love be a crime? Because Islam came to preserve people's honour. Why is it wrong to drink alcohol if it's private? Nobody sees. No, it's not in public. I'm not harming anybody. Why should I not drink alcohol? Because Islam came to preserve people's intellect. Every single thing which is haram in Islam can be put into one of those five categories. And there is not a madhab or a scholar in the history of Islam who disagreed with them. They agreed unanimously that Islam came to preserve the religion, and Islam came to preserve people's lives, and Islam came to preserve people's Wealth and Islam came to preserve people's intellect and Islam came to preserve people's honor And they agreed about that And so This is something that we can use From an usul perspective, from a fiqh perspective, we can use it, we can apply it Because we know that this is the intention behind the sharia This is why Allah Azza wa Jal made haram what he made haram All of it because of protecting and preserving these five basic necessities. These five basic essential requirements. And so we can make sure that our rulings that we make also preserve those basic things. And that we judge in Islamic rulings In light of knowing that these are the five most essential things that Islam came to preserve. So when we actually make judgments, we make sure that our judgments are judgments which do not break one of these essential necessities. And that if one of these essential necessities is is broken in a way that is incompatible with the Sharia, That this ruling is wrong and this ruling needs to be rethought and changed so we have these basic overriding principles and rules with which we can understand Islam and the evidence for these rules is primarily al-istiqra which means that you go down through every single thing which is haram in Islam and you put it in a box as to why it is haram. And you come up with five things. You don't come up with six or seven or ten, you only come up with five things. Preserve people's religion, preserve people's life, preserve people's intellect, preserve people's wealth, and preserve people's honor. That's what you come out with, you don't come out with anything else. And then on top of that, you have consensus, that the scholars agree unanimously that these are the basic reasons for which Islam legislates what it legislates. That is why things are halal and things are haram, and that is why we are required to do certain things and not do other things. And so this is one general sort of overriding principle. And as we said, we're going to take this from a poem, I personally think uh, it's well worth memorizing our scholars used to encourage us to memorize it they used to give prizes and you know like uh, competitions and things and one of the things they would tell people to memorize is this it is a poem which means it's easy to memorize but maybe the arabic is a little a little difficult for people who are just starting off I'm not going to say to you you have to memorize it today or tomorrow but put it on your list of things to memorize because a lot of students the problem we have a lot of our students our you know goal beginning and end is to memorize the Quran and that's praiseworthy but that should not be the end of what you memorize and that is also true of your children if the if what your children memorize and if the only thing your children memorize is the Quran That's beautiful. But if they memorize the Qur'an and they memorize some of the ahadith and they memorize some of the poetry and they memorize some of the mutun, some of the Islamic texts and books, then this is much, much more complete. Not that we are saying they should stop memorizing the Qur'an and start memorizing poetry. Of course not. But on your list and on their list of things to memorize should be some of the beneficial texts, especially the ones that are very short and easy to understand. This text is very short, I don't remember 40 something lines, it's not not very big. But the benefit from it is immense. You can take more benefit from it in general than you can from studying a book of fiqh in 20 volumes. Because that book of Fiqh in 20 volumes is going to give you specific answers to specific questions. But this is going to give you general rules that you can use to develop answers for thousands of questions. And both have their place. We're not saying don't study those, you have to study all of them. But definitely getting your children to understand and you to memorize and putting it on your list of things to memorize. So you have on your list to memorize Quran and you have on your list to memorize the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawawi and then you start memorizing bulugh al-Maram for example and then you start memorizing some basic texts maybe a small text in aqeedah might memorize for example al-wasitiyah aqeedah al-wasitiyah that we started doing might memorize tahawiyah as we got to some of the kids in Kelima, they came to one of, the, one of the summer camps, maybe last year, they memorised Al-Aqeed Al-Tahawiyyah Some of them memorised almost the whole thing That will stay with them forever And when you teach people, that is what will stay in your mind You will not remember, very rare Unless Allah has gifted you with an amazing memory, you'll not ma- remember what the Shafiyyah said and what the Malikiyah said and what the Hanabilah said and what the Hanafiyah said and who among the Hanafiyah dissented and who agreed and who agreed with the Malikiya and how many of the Malikiya degre- disagree with the Shafi'i. This you will memorize for the exam, and ninety nine percent of you will have forgotten it by the time you leave the room. But these principles will stay with you forever. You'll never ever forget that Islam came to preserve people's religion and their life, their honor, their intellect, and their wealth. And that stays with you forever. And our teachers used to tell us this. Our teachers used to say, and I was in a class of people who, like, I can't describe how good their memory is. They would get a mudhakkira, a notebook of like, you know, an A4 notebook of hundred and fifty pages and memorize it word for word, like in a week. These guys were in memorization just something else. Some of them went on to memorize the Kutub al One of them, and sometimes you'll meet them and they'll say, oh yeah, I only have Musnat al-Imam Ahmed left, planning on doing it this summer. Musnat al-Imam Ahmed? In the summer, this is like they had memorization skills. And our teachers used to tell them, You will not remember. You will not remember all of the tafasil, the details, the individual masail. But what you try to remember is you try to remember the most important things. So in fiqh, what is the most important thing? In fiqh is the most important thing. What the Maliki and the Shafi'iyah and the Hanafiyah and the Hanabilah said and the Zahiriya, is that the most important thing in Fiqh? That's not the most important thing in Fiqh. The most important thing in Fiqh is you should know the rajih, the right thing to do. You should know, is it Halal to do this or Haram to do this? And then the Dalil, if you can. If your memory is quite good, then you can memorize the rajih, the correct opinion and the Dalil. And if you remember this for the rest of your life, then what an amazing, amazing benefit your study has been to you. And yes, there will be people, there will be individuals who will remember all of these different, you know, the ikhtilaf and the minor details and the individual points. Many of them will become scholars who will teach the people talab al ilm who are serious, you know, like that. There are people who memorize, no doubt. But at the end of the day, what matters to you as an individual is that you get the most important and the most critical information and you retain it. And so in fiqh, the most critical information is quite simply, what is the right thing to do? When you walk into the masjid and it is Waqt Nahi. It's a time when it's forbidden to pray. Do you pray Tahiyat al Masjid or not? It doesn't matter what the Shayfiya said. It doesn't matter what the Malikiyah said. It doesn't matter what the Hanafi said. It doesn't matter if the Hanafis among themselves differed in five different opinions. And some of them said none of that matters at all. What matters is when you walk in the door of the Masjid. Do you pray Tahiyat al Masjid or you don't pray Tahiyat al Masjid? That's what matters the correct opinion if you know that alhamdulillah that's an amazing thing on top of that if you know a dalil if you know an evidence for that and you can say when i walk in the masjid the time when it's forbidden to pray i pray tahiyat al masjid because of this hadith in which the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said o bani abdul manaf do not stop anyone who enters this masjid from praying two raka'ah in any hour of the day or the night. For example, any the and he don't stop the people from tawaf, from praying, the, from praying the tawaf and their prayers in any hour of the day or the night. For example, so now you have an opinion, the correct opinion, and you have an evidence. And then... If you can on top of that remember that the scholars differed and that the Shafi'iya held the opinion that it's allowed generally, that it is allowed to pray the prayers that have a particular cause or a particular reason or a particular purpose behind them even in the time when it's forbidden to pray and you remember that they were that the Hanabila have two opinions in this and you remember that the malikiya took the opinion that you don't pray If you remember these things Alhamdulillah Noorun Ala Noor light upon light but it's very important we study in the right way and i think this topic of al-qawaid al fiqhiyah is one of those topics which stays with you for a very long time and you benefit from it immensely because it is so applicable in every part of your life i think Usul al-fiqh is um the core of it is like that but usul al fiqh also is it has it has its, it has its you know it's picky details and the things that you forget and the things that you you know it has things that you kind of maybe struggle with at times you don't always understand you have to reread again but there are elements even of usul there are elements that are like that that you know that you they stick with you for a long long time because you use them all the time in everything that you do and this the reason I mentioned this is that this poem that we're going to do which is this manzuma, this poem of al-qawaid al fiqhiya by al-imam to Rahman ibn Nasr al sadi rahimahullah this poem is going to gather the most important bits of fiqh and usul in a very very general way and just give you them as basic overriding principles. For sure you have to remember two things when you, when you study this. Number one, remember istithna. For every rule there, there is an exception. So we shouldn't think that we learn to rule now, we learn to rule now, we're going to go and give fatawa. Uh, there are exceptions to rules. And really that's what makes a scholar, to be honest with you. Um, a scholar is not somebody who knows the rules and knowing the rules that's like fairly elementary you know that's like that's not what makes a scholar and what makes a scholar is not knowing the correct opinion in lots of issues that also doesn't make a scholar because If that were the case, we would have an abundance of scholars. Because there are lots of strong students of knowledge who know the right thing to do and know the correct opinion and they know their general rules and they know how to apply them. Lots and lots and lots of people. But it's the nuances, knowing those tiny little issues, knowing the time when the rule doesn't apply and knowing the time when the principle is different and knowing how to judge the, the greater of two goods and the lesser of two evils. That's what makes a scholar. That's what the scholar is. And that explains to you the confusion a lot of people have over the duaat and the talaab al-ilm. People who teach you in your classes, you know... Um, and they, they, they attribute them to being scholars. They'll say, you know, sometimes people will say, a scholar like yourself. And I think, a scholar like myself. The problem is they don't know what a scholar is. They think that the fact that you know what to do in a certain situation makes you a scholar. That might make you a talib ilm. It might make you a student of knowledge. Maybe. I mean, to be honest, it probably just makes you a practicing Muslim. But if you study it and you're trying to study and you're trying, you know, it, may, it might make you a student of knowledge. But it doesn't make you a scholar. The scholar is the one who knows all of those little nuances and those little exceptions and all of those little things that trip you up and has such a comprehensive understanding of the way that the Sharia works that they are able to really delve into it and really bring you out you know, the finest of, of, of details, you know, to split the finest of hairs, so to speak. And that is why those du'at and those tulab ilm those students of knowledge who teach you are not scholars. Because they do not have that ability. They know their basic rules, they know their basic principles, they memorize their texts and you know, so on. But they don't have that ability and that's an important yeah, point so we bear in mind that that there are there is a lot to go after this book this book will give you a nice start and every time you study it you you should remember the statement of al-imam shaf shafi'i rahimahullah ta'ala he said kullama arani naqsa aqli وإذا ما زدت علماً زادني علماً بجهلي. he said every time the time corrects me, any time chastises me. what does he mean by دبَنِ الدَّهْر؟ any time I realize, you know, I, I study something else and I realize that what I knew before was not was not right. Or was not completely correct. Time corrects me. Arani naqsa aqli. It shows me how deficient my intellect is. Wa ida ilman. And every time I increase in knowledge. Zadani ilman It only increases me in knowing how ignorant I, I am. And that's a reality. You study this and you're like, whoa. I understand now, I understand fiqh, now I understand usul, now I really, you know, now I understand why the fatahwah, now I understand why that thing that I thought was haram is, is not haram, and why that thing I thought was halal is haram. And then you study another line and you think, oh, last week I was really ignorant. And then you study another line and you think, subhanallah, I didn't know that. And time goes by correcting you and showing you that each time you think you have reached the, the peak or the pinnacle of a particular area of knowledge, it only opens up to you how ignorant you were before and how much there is to go. It's like a person climbing a mountain. He sees like a cliff, the edge of, of, a, of, a, of a cliff. So where he thinks this is the peak of the mountain. So he gets to the edge of it with a lot of hardship and he stands on the top of the cliff and then he realizes Whoa, there's a nut. the peak is all the way up there So he gets all the way up to that peak And then he realizes Whoa, actually I'm completely wrong This isn't the peak at all The peak is all the way up there And he keeps on doing it his whole life Until he realizes that he's never going to reach the peak at all But it's just a constant process of climbing All the time So you should realize that these qawaid Don't get too carried away You know, if we study a few general principles that, you know, suddenly, you know, you get a Fath from Allah. Allah opens up your heart to something and realize something. Don't let that let you get carried away and think you reached the top of the mountain. But, be happy that you reached another stage, you reached another place. And the second thing that we we said, first thing you have to remember is that there is always an exception uh, to the rule. The second thing that you have to remember is that principles and the Sharia in general need to be taken as a whole. If you take any one principle and apply it without looking at the others, you will end up with a ruling that contradicts Islam. You'll end up with a ruling that contradicts Islam. And this is really where many, many people from Ahlul Bid'ah, the people of innovation, went wrong. They took one principle, they applied it completely, and they ignored the rest of the Sharia. The Sharia comes as a whole. Like the person who says, Inna mal a'malu bin niyat. Actions are according to your intentions. And then they do something the Prophet ﷺ never did. And his companions never did. And the scholars of Islam never did. And he says, I have a pure niyyah, my niyyah is pure. Your niyyah is not enough. Yes, and niyyah, intention, is the core of the matter in Islam. And all of Islam comes back to intention. But it's not the only thing in Islam if it were the only thing in Islam, there would not be any need for teaching people how to pray or how to fast or how much zakah to give. You would say give whatever you want innamal الْأَعْمَالُ بالنيات. Actions are according to your intention. You say to someone, pray however many times a day you want. Innamal الْأَعْمَالُ بالنيات. Pray however many rakah you want. Innamal الْأَعْمَالُ بالنيات. And I've seen this argument used it's not such a you know, it's not such a it sounds crazy But it's not such a like you will hear people use this argument You will hear people when you say to them ya akhi don't do this. This is not allowed You will see you questioning my niya. My niya is pure. Haven't you heard the hadith innama al-a'malu Actions are according to your intentions What do we reply we say, haven't you heard the hadith man amila amalan laysa alayhi amruna fahuarad whoever does an action that's not in accordance with my sunnah it will be rejected Islam is not one principle that you you know squeeze it so much there's nothing left in it and you build something that has nothing to do with Islam on top of it Islam is all of those principles likewise it's not acceptable for a person to pray a prayer according to the sunnah such that you never saw a person pray so close to the sunnah as this. And then he shares his intention with other than Allah. And his intention is to show off, or his intention is to pray to other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This will not be accepted from him. He says, but didn't you hear the hadith of Aisha? Man laysa alayhi rad and I just did an action which is in accordance with the Sunnah in every single way we say to him didn't you hear the hadith innama al-a'malu bin niyat so Islam is not one principle that you build everything upon Islam is all of these principles and all of these rules and they have to be taken collectively and when you take them collectively at that point inshallah you will get the right result out of them. Because Allah did not reveal part of His book to strike another part of His book with. Rather the Qur'an was revealed as a whole. To be in synergy, in agreement with, with itself. And like we say, parts of it give truth to the others and each part of it gives truth to the other part and each part of it agrees with the other part and the Sunnah agrees with the Quran and the Quran agrees with the Sunnah it's a cohesive system where everything works in synergy and everything works with the other parts it's not the case that part of the Qur'an, we take it and we don't take the other part. Didn't Allah say, wa Do you believe in part of the book and disbelieve in another part of the book? And Allah criticized those people who believed in some of the prophets and disbelieved in some of the prophets, or believed in some of the revelation and disbelieved in other parts of the revelation. Rather, we take the Qur'an and the Sunnah as a whole, and we apply it with reference to all of these principles together. And I give you an example. There's a principle we're going to come to, that hardship brings about ease. There's an overriding principle in Sharia. Whenever there is hardship, Islam legislates ease. Whenever there is hardship, Islam legislates ease. This principle has been so badly abused by people who claim to be scholars or people of knowledge or ordinary people. It's been so badly abused. Because people use it to ignore the rest of the sharia. And he says, Wallah, I have a a, a riba-based loan. You say, Akhir, riba is haram. It's a major sin. He says, Wallah, Al-Mashaqqa tajlib Al-Taysir. Hardship brings ease. And so what did the person do? They took one principle. They threw away 90% of the Quran and the Sunnah on the side they took this principle and they held on to it and they just kept on building and building and building until they do every kind of haram on the face of this earth and when you ask them why they are doing this haram, they say, "Al tajlib at Taysir. Don't you know the principle that hardship brings about ease? Hardship necessitates that we should make a ruling that is easy and wallah, it's hard for me to buy this nice new car so you know, I need a haram loan to do it so again we emphasize that the principles are taken together and they're taken with the understanding of the salaf with the understanding of the early generations not with the understanding of you know like just my understanding of what is ease and what is difficulty allah azza wa said in the quran yuridullahu bikum al-yusr Allah wants ease for you and doesn't want difficulty. And in the same Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, O you people, O you who believe, protect yourself from the punishment of Allah and leave off riba. That didn't come in a different book. One of them is not from Christianity and the other one is from Islam. Or one of them is not from Buddhism and the other one is from Islam. Allah wants ease for us and Allah told us that riba is haram. Those two come together. They're not, it's not like we believe in one of them and we disbelieve in the other one. So be careful about this movement. And I call it a movement. It's like a harakah. It's a movement towards everything being easy in a way that was not understood by the companions in a way that was not understood by the Prophet in a way that contradicts the Quran, you will find people and you will find them like, you know, every fatwa, it's halal. And when you ask them for their justification, Everything hard means that we have to make a ruling to make things easy. But when you understand this ruling in the right way, you will see it will benefit you immensely in many things. Like the man who comes in and he can't stand up to pray. He's got a sore, like a pain in his, in his, uh, in his back maybe and he struggles to stand to pray. We say to him, akhi Al-Kareem, you can sit and pray. If you are struggling so much, you got pain, he says, Allah, I have to stand because standing is a condition of the prayer. We say to him, Al-Mashaqqa, Tajlib Al-Taysir. Hardship brings about and he necessitates a ruling of ease. And the Prophet Sallallahu said, if you can't pray standing, then pray sitting, and if you can't pray sitting, then pray lying down. So we've understood inshallah as an, as an introduction to this, that we have to just be a little bit careful that we, we don't misapply some of these things and end up changing the rules which Allah legislated for us, those rules which are themselves beneficial to us. Didn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say, fil qisas haya"? You have in killing people out of retribution, in, in the, the judge who kills the murderer, for example, life. Someone might say We don't kill the murderer Because the sharia came to preserve people's lives We don't kill the murderer Because the sharia came to preserve people's lives Allah told us in the Quran That by killing the murderer You preserve people's lives You preserve people's lives By having the murderer Who kills a person, killed This is what preserves people's life So we understand that we take the Sharia as a whole, and that these rules are not rules which are add-ons. Like, you know, okay, this is haram, let's you know, plug this in and then suddenly you know, it becomes halal. These are rules that exist within the Sharia in everything. That's why you break your fast when you travel. That's why you shorten your prayer when you travel. That's why when you have a bad back, you pray sitting down. Because the Sharia already includes these rules built in to every single part of it, and inshallah we will see that through examples as we continue. So we we'll make a start, uh, uh The Sheikh he said, alhamdulillahi His first, you know, few lines is in, just in, by introduction. Usually the poet, poem uh, in a poem they usually introduce the poet usually introduces himself introduces the poem introduces various things so the po- poet he started uh, the sheikh he started bismillahir rahmanir rahim following the guidance of the book of the, uh, the book of allah azza and the sunnah of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam who both began with bismillahir rahmanir rahim allah in his quran began the quran with bismillahir rahmanir rahim and began every surah except Surah Al-Bara with Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim and the Prophet Wasallam when he would write a letter, he would begin with Bismillah Al-Rahman Al-Rahim, and then he begins with his first line of poetry with Alhamdulillah with praising Allah Azza Alhamd, and as we've covered in our tafsir, praising Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala is more than just praise. Actually, the word praise in itself is not, not the best word. Because you can praise somebody and not love them. And you can praise somebody and not respect them. And it's just, uh, you know, for example, let's take a human being. You can praise a human being and not love them. I mean, you know, you just like want to build them up a bit, you know, you can praise them, you can praise them when you, do, it's not really in your heart, you know, you're not, your heart is not full of love for them. You can say words of madh, yani words of praise. And you can say words of praise for someone that you don't really, you know, deep down, you don't have that deep respect and honor of. You praise them in a particular characteristic. You know, someone asks you about your. You know, your manager at work and you say, Well, you know, he's is very well organised. You know, and maybe in your heart you're thinking, and yeah, he doesn't listen to me and he doesn't give me my time and he doesn't give me enough money and he doesn't but you praise him for a particular thing that he does. And that praise doesn't necessitate that you love that person. But as for Alhamd, al Mutlaq, absolute praise. Complete praise. For Allah Azza wa Jal, then this is the praise that has probably two main features in it. Number one, it's absolute. It's not praise in one tiny little element. It's not like, oh, he's re-, you know, he's well organized, or he's, uh, he's a good speaker, or he is, um, you know, he, he's very kind to us, you know, or he's quite generous. It's not like that. It's praise which is absolute. It's praise for every name and attribute and action that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does. And the second thing that kind of stands out is that it is praise based upon absolute love and honor. And you honor, you have, your heart is full of submission and full of love and full of respect towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when you praise Him. And that makes it different from the praise that you might praise to, you might say someone is Mahmoud. he's Mahmoud. he's and he gets praised. But that praise will only be limited to certain things and will not be said with absolute love and honor uh, and respect. So he praises Allah al-Ali, and Allah Azza wa Jal, He is Al-Ali, Ali ul azim He is al Ali in three ways, as we have said. Uloo. Addat wa Al-Qadr wa Al-Qahar. Allah Azza wa Jal is the Most High, al Ali, in Himself, because He Himself is above His Arsh he's the most high above his throne subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah is the most high in status nobody has a higher status than Allah Azza wa and Allah is the most high in Al Qahar in the fact that he is the one who is compelling and controlling and dictating what happens and what doesn't happen to his slaves And his slaves don't have any choice so he is above them compelling them we don't have like we don't have a choice to to reject the Qadr of Allah Azza wa Jal that Allah Subh'anaHu Wa has decreed we make choices about what we want to do but we don't have a and if Allah Azza wa Jal has decreed for you to become sick tomorrow you don't have a choice to not become sick so Allah Azza wa Jal is high above his slaves in him compelling them in his status over them, and in himself, in his essence subhanahu wa ta'ala, above his arsh, above the seven heavens, in a place and in a way that suits his majesty and his supremacy over his slaves. Then he said, "Al-arfaq." Uh, I don't know that Al-arfaq is a, a name of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, but you can say this about Allah Subhanahu wa Taala: that Allah is the most kind, or not perhaps not the most kind, perhaps even you could say the most gentle and kind to His slaves. All of His actions are merciful. All of his actions have a rifq softness, and gentleness, and mercy within them. And as we said, this is not a name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but something that we say about Allah azzawajal, which is true. That indeed in in all of Allah's actions there are, there a ar-rifq. There is softness, gentleness. Kindness, subtlety, and from the names of Allah Azza wa that support that is the name Al-Latif There is subtlety and the name Ar-Rauf, the most kind, and Al raheem the bestower of mercy All of these are names which suggest that Allah Azza wa within His actions is Ar-Rifq, softness and kindness, and gentleness And the Prophet sallallahu used this word to describe the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the gentleness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala towards his servants. So there is no, there is no harm in this inshaAllah. And that Allah azza wa jal is the one who gathers things together and who breaks them apart or who separates them. He gathers and he separates. And I think this is perhaps, Allah knows best, that this is perhaps an indication of the topic at hand. And often you see the scholars do this when they praise Allah. They praise Allah with reference to the topic at hand. So what is the topic at hand? The topic at hand is Al-Qawa'id Al-Jami'ah any yani comprehensive uh, You know general Encompassing Rules So to praise Allah for the fact that Allah is the one who Gathers things together in one place And separates them out Makes sense Because that relates to the topic at hand, right? The topic at hand is I'm gonna gather for you lots of rules in one place And then you're going to apply those rules to different things. And so Allah is the one who gathers whatever He wills in one place and separates things out wherever He wills. So perhaps this is like the author is giving an indication of the topic or he's praising Allah in light of the topic at hand. And you hear this a lot. Like for example, if you listen to the the Jumu'ah Khutbah, a lot of the time the Imam will praise Allah in light of the topic So the topic might be The you know a topic of safety and and security and peace in the country and He says for example alhamdulillah the one who Has placed safety and security in the land Or alhamdulillah the one who commanded us to establish safety and security in the land so he praises Allah in light of the topic at hand and that is what i think al imam saadi rahimahullah ta'ala is doing here because he is about to gather some principles which, which gather everything in what you know they are, they are jami'ah. they are jami'ah, they gather everything in one place and the application of those principles to many many different things and so allah deserves to be praised because he is the one who gathers together what he wills جَامِعُ <laughs> النَّاسِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gathers the people together on a, on a day that there will be no doubt in it. So this is an example of Allah gathering together. And Allah separates what He wants. Allah عز wa gives out provision to whoever He wants and withholds provision from whoever He wants. So Allah Azza gathers together what He wants in one place and separates what He wants whenever He wants. Subhanahu wa Taala. The Sheikh himself, he mentions, and he's a, in his own explanation that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, as an example gathered the people in their creation and Separated between them for example in their belief or in their appearance So he gathered them together by the fact that he created all as human as all as human beings and then he separated us in color and height and you know like various other things beauty and handsomeness or whatever. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sometimes puts everything together and sometimes makes things different. Sometimes He does everything together and sometimes He splits things apart. And that is the case with the rules of fiqh and the the principles. There are issues that are split individually into little, little places and then there are overriding rules that Allah has gathered for us that we can apply. ذ النعذ النعمة الواسعة العزيرة والحكم الباهرة الكثيرة. continues to praise Allah عز جل, saying that Allah is the نعمة، Allah is the one who possesses all bounty. وما بيكون من نعمة فمن Allah. Whatever blessing, whatever bounty you have, whatever good you have, it's from Allah. And his ni'am awasi yani his blessings are expansive. As Allah Azza wa said, wa inta lā tuḥsūha." If you try to count the blessings of Allah, you'll not be able to count them. And Allah Azza has infinite wisdom. An obvious wisdom, and the wisdom is clear to you to, to all those people who look. And again, this is kind of, Shaykh is kind of introducing the topic that these rules are going to be full of wisdom and full of blessings. So it's not like the Shaykh is just mentioning the praise of Allah for, for the praise alone. He's introducing the topic quietly with the praise of Allah by saying that Allah has many, many blessings that are vast. And one of the blessings is that He's made it easy for us. To gather these rules and to understand them, and Allah Azza wa has immense wisdom, and that wisdom you will see within these rules that you are going to, that you are going to study. Then he says, "Then he says, ثم مع سلام دائم على wa alihi wa abrari al-ha'iz maratib al Fahari. he said then thumma yani after praising allah azza wa jalla we send as-salah along with as-salam we said as-salah is The meaning of as salah is for Allah Azzawajal to exalt the mention of the Prophet Sallallahu with Al-Mala'ul-A'la, in the company of the, the highest angels. And the meaning of as salam is for Allah Azzawajal to protect the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi and preserve him from anything that would take away from his status. And his position. And the Sheikh describes this salat and this salam as being da'im. It's always, because the Muslim is always sending salat and salam upon the Prophet Sallallahu Rather, I remember one of the really, really beautiful things that we learned when we first started to study Hadith on the virtue of the muhaddithin, the scholars of Hadith. Is that the virtue of people is somewhat dictated by the amount of salaat and salam that they give upon the Prophet sallallahu That's one of the things which makes a person virtuous. The huge amount of as-salatu as that they give upon the Prophet sallallahu or to the Prophet sallallahu Who is it in the world who gives the most salah and salam upon the Prophet. There is no doubt whatsoever that it is the scholar of Hadith. There is nobody else who spends their day and night writing and saying Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam more than the scholar of hadith. Because this is their, this is their, their job, and yani all day, all night, they are in the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, all day, all night, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And that's why you'll never see a scholar of hadith write S-A-W, abadan, never. And you'll never see them write in Arabic, S-A-D, ever, not even one. Rather, they criticize the one who writes S-A-W. And they say this person, if you write it, they will say this person is not a talib-ilm, this person is not a student of knowledge, who writes SAW or who writes Saad after the name of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Because they are missing on that huge virtue and that huge requirement that when you hear the name of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, you say say Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And along with them, of course, the scholars of Islam, who spend their time teaching and studying and reading, they also frequent the Salah and Salam upon the Prophet sallallahu And if you want further you know, sort of information about this, Ibn qayyim rahimahullah taala has a beautiful book, which I don't know why it has not been translated yet. Maybe it has, and I'm not aware of it. Called Jala'ul afham fi Fadl al ala al And it deals with the virtue of giving Salah and salam upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam And all of the good that comes about from that and the, the method of it and the ways to do it and the ways not to do it Because there is a way not to do it like every Ibadah There is a Sunnah and there is a, a Bidah. There is the right way of doing it and the wrong way of doing it So there is the right way of doing what people call durud and the wrong way of doing what people call durud. There's a right way, there's a wrong way. There's a sunnah, there's a bid'ah. And Ibn al-Qayyim describes huge, a huge amount of virtues and benefits relating to giving salat wa upon our Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa Now, someone might say, well, what if I'm writing quickly? And I want to, what if I'm writing quickly and I, I, I want to, uh, you know, I, I don't have time. Leave a gap. Come back later on. Today is a Friday. It's the day which is the most virtuous day for giving us. Salatu wassalam upon the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Take your time after Jumu'ah and sit and write. Every time you wrote his name, sit and write. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And you'll see the virtue of that in your akhlaq, in your manners, in your life, in your rizq, in so many things. You will see the difference in, in doing that. And there is nobody more stingy than the one who hears the name of the Prophet and doesn't say Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam after his after his name. And like every ibadah, giving salat and salam upon the Prophet comes back to you with good. I don't think sometimes people say, like I'm sitting here, you know, making dua for somebody else. I'm not getting anything back. All of this good is coming back upon upon you. From the good that is coming back upon you is that Allah has angels, Sayyya fil Art. Sayyya يعني ya they're traveling and tourism. Travelling around the world, listening for the one who gives a salatu was salam upon the Prophet. Then they convey that to him. And Allah returns his soul to his body and he returns the salam. And isn't that enough of a virtue? That's enough of a virtue. And that is only one of the many, many virtues of as-salatu as salam upon the Messenger Sahbi. And he is Al Rasul al Qurashi. He is the Rasul from Quraysh. And he is al khatam the last of the Prophets. Because as Allah Azzawajal told us, that the Messenger of Allah is not the father of any one of your sons, of any one of your men. But he is the Messenger of Allah, khatam al and the last of the Prophets. Wa-Alihi wa-Sahbihi al-Abrari, and from the good etiquette of a person, is that when they give a salatu was salam, or when they send a salatu was salam upon the Prophet that they send it upon his followers and his companions. And al al, according to the stronger opinion, scholars differed over al-al and when we say wa ala alihi some of them said al-al are his family and some said al-al are his followers and the correct opinion is that they are his followers and there's a very famous line of poetry which the poet says that the equivalent of it that if it were the case that Al Al were his family, La Sall al Ala Abi Lahabin, the person who gives salam would be giving salam upon Abu Lahab. And if it were the case that Al Al were the family of the Prophet, وسلم, then from the family of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam were people who are not Muslim, like Abu Lahab, and Abu Talib, and others were from Ali, from the from the family of the Prophet sallam, but they were not Muslim. So either we say his believing family, or we say his followers. And Sheikh here he says, "هم أتباعه على دينه إلى يوم Al Al, they are all those who follow his religion until the day of judgment. And among them, particularly. Because Al Al covers everyone who follows the, the family of the, follows the, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Particularly, we give specific mention to as Sahaba, As Sahb, as Sahb. I as Sahaba. as Sahaba who are Al Abrar. They are the people who we can conclusively say were pious. You can't give. You can't claim piety for anyone. But the Sahaba, you can claim piety for them. Why? Because Allah testified to their piety in the Quran. And that is why anyone who criticizes the piety of the companions as a whole is kafirun murtad. Why? Because he disbelieved in the Quran. Not because he just doesn't like Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman. But because he disbelieved in Allah's praise of them in the Quran. And whoever disbelieves in an ayah of the Qur'an has disbelieved in the whole Qur'an. And that is why we say that criticism of an individual companion does not take you outside of Islam. Even though this is an evil, evil way. And this is from the worst of the bid'ah that the people fell into, to criticize an individual companion. But why doesn't it take you out of Islam? There's no doubt it is a bid'ah and it's an evil way. But why doesn't it take you out of Islam? Because ultimately, it doesn't involve disbelief in the Quran. But when you speak about the Sahaba as a whole, and you say all of the Sahaba were evil, all of the Sahaba were like this, or most of the Sahaba were like this, this is disbelief in the Quran. And that's why it takes a person outside of Islam. And it may be that criticizing individual companions may do the same, in certain circumstances. For example, accusing Aisha radiallahu anha of adultery. This is also disbelief. A person may say, how can this be disbelief? It's one person. Okay, it's a sin. You know, like if I accuse a person of adultery, I'm, I did a major sin. But it takes you out of Islam because Allah Azza said that she is innocent. Allah told us in Surah An-Nur that Aisha radiallahu anha is innocent of this accusation that they made against her. And so whoever repeats that accusation after knowing the ayah in Surat An-Nur, he is kafir. Because he disbelieved in the Qur'an, he disbelieved in the ayat of the Qur'an. And so we can claim piety for the companions. And there is nothing wrong with saying all of the companions are from the people of Jannah. Because Allah said, وَكُلَّنْ وَعِدَ اللَّهُ الْحُسْنَىٰ Every single one of them Allah has promised, al-husna. Can you imagine that Allah promises you Al-Husna and then you are from the people of Jahannam? Can it be that Allah promises you Al-Husna, Al-Husna the best reward and then you are from the people of Jahannam? And Allah said, وَكُلَّا نْوَعِدَ اللَّهُ husna Every single one of them, those who came before and those who came after are from the people of Jannah. And this was said by some of the scholars including Ibn Hazm ta'ala and it is the correct opinion without a shadow of a doubt. That all of them are from the people of Jannah. All of the Sahaba عنهم, all of them are from the people of Jannah. As long as they fulfilled the condition of being among the Sahaba, i.e. Yani they met the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam believing in him, and they died as a Muslim. There is no doubt that every single one of them is from the people of Jannah. Every one of them, Allah promised, paradise. As Allah told us in the Quran. Then the Shaykh begins after that introduction. What did we finish now? We had that they have they are the ones who have achieved the the highest levels, يعني, the levels of of honour and dignity. And yes, sahaba. anhum. And those who follow them, yani al-al, al-al, those people who follow. Uh, as a, a small benefit, yani, it's better when you give salatul salam upon al-al or sahb, upon the family and upon the followers and the companions. It's better that you repeat the word ala. It's better that you say, sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa and that you don't say sallallahu alaihi wa alihi wa sahbi. Why is this? Because when you repeat the word ala, you give the salat and salaam twice. Once to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi and once to his followers and companions. When you don't repeat it, you split the salat and salaam among all of them. So you say, give some of the salat and salaam to the Prophet and some to the companions and some to the followers. So it is better out of etiquette even though there's nothing wrong with it, but it's better out of etiquette that you say Sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam or whichever variation of that you wish. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa ala alihi wa sahbihi Because when you repeat the word ala, you are effectively asking Allah for this dua twice. Once for the Prophet sallallahu sallam and once for those people who follow him and his companions. So then, Shaykh is going to start the, uh, or, or start somewhat more of an introduction to the text, inshallah. He says, <laughs> <laughs> He says, No. <laughs> and this is from the methodology of the scholars. They start their books. They tell you to get knowledge, to have knowledge. <laughs> have knowledge. So you'll remember ال- The Usul al ال- The books of uh, al- Shaykh يعne, uh, Rahimahullah Beginning with these terms rahimak allah No, may Allah have mercy on you. And making dua for the person who is reading the text. So he says I'm Hudit. No, may you be guided. Hudita, yani may you be, may you be guided. Because we're all in need of the guidance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we've mentioned this in the tafsir of Ihdina al al I'lam Hudith, Get knowledge, have knowledge. May you be guided. That the best of graces or blessings, al-minna, a grace that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you, like a, a blessing or a, a virtue that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you. That the best of virtues is what? Ilmun <inaudible> is knowledge. <inaudible> knowledge which removes doubt and uncertainty from you. the best thing that Allah can bless you with after the religion of Islam is knowledge that allows you to remove doubt And didn't we say one of the conditions of la ilaha illallah is knowledge and one of them is certainty so we get knowledge to remove ignorance and that knowledge leads us to certainty which removes doubt we get knowledge to remove ignorance and certainty to remove doubt and that certainty comes from knowledge so the sheikh is encouraging you to gain this knowledge and he's putting this knowledge in front of you in this poem to help you to Understand it and to kind of make it easy for you to get that knowledge. He continues praising this kind of knowledge and talking about the benefit of this knowledge. This knowledge uncovers the truth for those who have a heart. And for those who they, they have a mind and a heart with which they can reflect upon and which, with which they think. So when they get this knowledge, what does the knowledge do to them? It uncovers the truth for them, it shows them the truth from the falsehood. And Allah tells us about this in the Quran Allah guides those who believe. In the matters where there is a disagreement among the people of the book, the people of the scripture, or even among the Muslims, that Allah guides the people who believe to the truth by His permission. And it takes the servant to what he is seeking. Knowledge which takes you somewhere other than Jannah is not beneficial. What مطلوب? Al-Matloub? matloob is what we are seeking, what we are aiming for. What are we aiming for? We are aiming for Jannatul Firdaws, Al-A'la. We are aiming to gain knowledge that is going to get us there. And knowledge which isn't going to get us there is of no benefit. And there's no good in it, there's no praiseworthy, it's not praiseworthy. What is praiseworthy is the knowledge that will get us to al-matloob, that will get us to our goal, that will get us to our target. And so knowledge you don't act upon, or knowledge you don't implement, this is not knowledge which takes you to al-matloob, it's not knowledge which takes you to the benefit, to your target, to your goal. It's knowledge that takes you the wrong way. Like someone who's driving his car really, really fast, and really you know, concentrating but he's got the car in reverse he's going in the wrong direction so this is not benefiting him anything he's not getting closer to his goal he's not getting closer to his destination he's going further away, he's got his car in reverse that is the example of a person who learns knowledge and doesn't act upon it he's got his car in reverse he's learning a lot and he's going very fast but he's going in completely the wrong direction Going backwards instead of forwards. So we need knowledge that will take us towards al matloob And likewise, knowledge which has no benefit, like ilm al-kalam, which we talked about before. Rhetoric and philosophy. This doesn't get you to Jannah. It just makes you confused. It's like the guy in the car, he keeps taking a right and a left and a right and a left and a right and a, right and a left till he doesn't know where he is. This is the example of ilm al-kalam of rhetoric and philosophy took so many turns you don't even know which way is forward and which way is backwards anymore forget being in reverse he doesn't know which way is left and which way is right anymore he took so many turns he became dizzy so this knowledge didn't benefit anybody nobody got to jannah through ilm al-kalam or philosophy no one that never took anybody to jannah so what we want is we want knowledge that is going to remove doubt from us it's gonna remove confusion from us that is gonna uncover the truth for us and that is gonna take us to our destination that's the knowledge that we want and you know taking us to the destination There's multiple ways of understanding that I mean taking us to the destination in terms of what we're looking for in this subject taking us to the destination in terms of what we're looking for to use this for like in terms of fiqh learning the haram taking us to Jannah, but the point is we have various destinations we are going to and the only knowledge we're interested in is the knowledge that gets us to that destination. Then the Shaykh, he said, and by, and by the way in this I'm using the Shaykh's own explanation, and the Shaykh himself wrote an explanation of the poem. Um, sometimes I add from my own self, but generally I'm trying to you know, just reference what the Shaykh himself said, because nobody knows what the Shaykh is saying better than the, the Shaykh himself. He continues and he says, فَحْرِسْ عَلَىٰ فَهْمِكَ لِلْقَوَاعِدِ جَامِعَةِ الْمَسَائِلِ He says, so be really keen. Rahris. He's giving you advice. Be really keen to understand the general rules, Al-Qawaid. And if you base that upon what he said before about getting beneficial knowledge, he's telling you one of the most beneficial types of knowledge you can get is Al-Qawaid. Because when you learn a qaidah, when you learn a general principle or a rule, that rule works for you in hundreds of situations. Whereas when you learn an individual issue, mashaAllah is beneficial. But it benefits you only in one circumstance. So you learnt that it's not allowed to have a contract within a contract. The Prophet bay'ina Prophet said it's haram to Have a contract within a contract that benefits you in. I mean, benefits you when you have when you write contracts. But if you learn a principle, for example, that every transaction which contains uncertainty and every transaction which is not clearly defined, which is uncertain, is forbidden, this benefits you in pretty much every single transaction you will ever carry out in your life. But there are. Principles, uh, qawaid. But even that example I gave you is not a general rule. It's only a rule in transactions. I mean, but still, I mean, like it, it benefits you in that. Then take a general rule, like لا ضرر ولا dirar." There is no harm or reciprocating harm. That benefits you in everything from salah to marriage to business to, you know, the whole thing. Every single thing. So you have rules that will. And he's saying, فَحْرِسْ عَلَى فَهْمِكَ لِلْقَوَاعِدِ Be really keen to learn these qawaid, these rules, general rules. And they're from the best things a beginner can learn. Because, and not just a beginner, even more advanced people, but definitely as you start to learn Islam and become more expert in the sciences of Islam, the more rules and principles you learn, for sure it helps you a lot. And you can give me. I can give you like a, an example of the benefit of a rule or a principle over just an individual, you know, an individual thing. If you look at, for example, Tajweed, when you guys learn to recite the Quran, you imagine that you learn to recite the Quran, ayah by ayah, and the sheikh is, you know, the sheikh is just teaching you the ayah. Until you finish reading every single ayah to the sheikh, you can't read the Quran properly however if the sheikh teaches you a rule for example ahkam a meme sakina the ruling of a meme with a sukoon on it then every time you get a meme with a sukoon on it in the whole Quran from beginning to end you can read it properly does that mean we never teach by example? No, many, many times teaching by example because sometimes you give people a rule and they don't know how to do it. You tell him, okay, the rule of meem sakinah is like this, one, two, three, four, five. Then he reads it wrong. So yeah, you need examples, you need application. But definitely when kids are beginning, why is it we teach these kids ahkam al-ra, ahkam al mim as-sakinah, ahkam al-noon as-sakinah in tajweed, why do we teach them these rules? Because if we teach them the rules, Generally, they can read the the whole Quran, whereas if you just teach them ayah by ayah until they've read every ayah to you, they won't know how to read the the whole Quran, and maybe those ayat won't stick with them in their mind properly. So you combine between the two. So the Sheikh is teaching you the benefit of al-qawaid of having general rules, and then he says jam'i masail al-shawāridi, those rules which gather masā'il. Masail is the plural of Mas'ala. Mas'ala is a, literally something which is asked about. Yani it's an issue. Like a matter or an issue. So these rules, they are jami'ah. They gather Masail together. They gather lots of Masail shawarit. Yani shawarit, yani they, they are like sort of split up issues which have been split up around everywhere. They gather these split up issues into one place. So instead of like having these, these issues split up, if you look at again the Tajweed example, in one ayah you have Sakina, in one ayah you have Sakina, in one ayah you have ra, in one ayah you have lam, mukhaffafa mufakhamah, you have different, across lots of different ayat. How many ayat would you have to read before you finish the rules of Tajweed? Quite a lot, quite a lot of ayat before you could say that you have It's not like Surah Al-Fatiha contains all of them and you need like to read quite a few ayat before you can, maybe five, six pages before you gather all of the rules of tajweed in one place. Or you can extract the rules of tajweed from these ayat and put them in one page. One A4 page. So they gather together these qawaid, they gather all of these separate issues. These issues that are like one is over here, one is over here, one is on this page, one is on that page. They bring them all together in one place. So that you can go advance in your knowledge, the best kind of advancement Al-Irtiqa is to advance, to go to to rise up in your uh, in your knowledge يعني, or in anything. They said about the Prophet that we don't believe in your ruqiyik, we don't believe in your ruqi, your your rising up to the you're rising up to the heavens in, in, in al-Isra wal-Mi'raj. We will not believe in your Ruqi, your, your rising up. So the Shaykh, he says, so that you can rise up and advance in knowledge, the best kind of advancement. سُبْلَ الَّذِي قَدْ and you can follow the paths of those who have been given success from Allah. That is what we are here to do. That is why we keep talking all the time about following the Sahaba and following the best of the generations. Because we're after following the road of people who have been guaranteed Jannah. And we have a group of people who Allah said, These people, I'm happy with them. RadhiAllahu anhum wa radhu'an. And Allah said, وَكُلًا وَعِدَ اللَّهُ Husna." All of them, Allah has promised paradise. Those guys are going to Jannah. If you follow their path, you'll go where they go. And if you follow someone else's path, it may well be, or it's very likely, that you will not go where they go. Or you will at least delay your journey significantly. وَلَا تَتَّبِعُ السُّبُلَ فَتَفَرَّقَ بِكُمْ عَنْ سَبِيلِهِ Don't follow all of the other paths because they will take you away from the path of Allah. You want to follow and you want to be in the shadow and in the footsteps of people who have been given the success from Allah to get Jannah. And so you want to be following the Prophets and you want to be following the truthful, and you want to be following the martyrs and the righteous, the ones who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, What an excellent group of companions they are. And to be following the Sahaba who are the best example of yani, people after the prophets and the messengers, عليه The Shaykh says, وَهَذِهِ قَوَاعِدٌ نَظَّمْتُهَا مِنْ كُتْبِ أَهْلِ الْعِلْمِ قَدْ حَصَّلْتُهَا He said, these are rules that I have made into a poem. نَظَّمْتُهَا any the meaning of, uh, the Shaykh has gathered them together into a poem. From the books of the people of knowledge, I got them. And I didn't get them from my head, I didn't get them from my, uh, my own istiqram, my own reading. I went to the books of the scholars, the people of knowledge, and I gathered the rules that they mention in their books, and then I put them into a poem. And that's from the humility of the sheikh, to be honest, because the sheikh himself is a great, was a great, great scholar of Islam, one of the the great scholars of his time and yet look what he's saying he's saying i didn't write this from myself don't give me credit for these rules i didn't make these rules i brought these rules from the books of the scholars i went to the books of the scholars i found that all of them agreed on certain rules i got these rules and i put them into a poem jazahumul mawla azimul al ajri وَالْعَفْوَ مَعْ غُفْرَانِهِ والبرري. May Allah Al-Mawla al maula is one of the names of Allah May Allah al maula Give them the best of rewards and He's making dua for the scholars Who extracted these rules And may Allah give them Al-Afu May Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala overlook Their mistakes and his ghufran, And may Allah forgive them And Al-Birr I and mean, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be good to them I and mean, give them the best of rewards and the best of, uh, the, best of, uh, of the paradise and, and the, the good that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prepared for his believing slaves. And no doubt, we make dua for our scholars and our mashayikh, our shuyukh, because they are the ones who started off on this journey and started us off on this journey. And if it were not for Allah and then for them, we would never have started on this journey. And so we, and we, we make du'a for them, and it's from good etiquette to make du'a for the sheikh. Uh, we make du'a for and those people, and from them al alama Sadi, Rahimahullah Taala, because and the minimum we can do is to say for his name Rahimahullah Taala. That's a, you know the least we can do for him, having put together this poem for us and having started us off on this journey and having made du'a for us and having, and he done so much to put this together for us. And he himself is saying the same thing. He's saying that I am not the one who did this. I'm making dua for my scholars and my teachers who put these things together and they would say the same until they reach who? Until they reach the Sahaba and until they reach the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, who is the source of every single good in this ummah. And that is you know, on a small point of benefit. That is why when you you that is why you don't need to do deeds to give them to the Prophet ﷺ. some people you know for example will say I pray a prayer one is for me and one of them I gift it to our messenger sallallahu alaihi there is no need for you to gift anything to him because everything you do is gifted to him anyway how do we know that everything you do is gifted to him anyway because he sallallahu alaihi told us this he told us that the one who calls to guidance gets the reward of the people who follow that guidance and their reward doesn't decrease in anything. So you don't lose anything out of your prayer. Who is the one who taught everyone in the Muslim Ummah how to pray? The Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam. He taught his companions. And they get the lion's share of the reward as well. Like he gets the reward of all of them and they get the reward of all of us because ultimately we didn't know Islam until they shared Islam with us, until they brought Islam to us, until they went out and gave da'wah to people, we did not know Islam. We did not know any Quran or any Sunnah or any Prophet until they came to us and told us about it. So everything that we do came also from them. And first of all from the Prophet ﷺ and then from them. So every time you pray, the person who taught you how to pray from the companions, meaning, For example, in the hadith of Uthman or in the hadith of, for example, uh, one of the, uh, one of the companions who taught how to pray, hadith of Abu Hurairah, those people are getting the reward for every single person who acts upon that hadith until al Qiyamah. And so ultimately every good deed that you do, the Prophet gets a copy of it, gets a a copy of the reward given to him for his whole ummah because the only, re- the only way we came to guidance is through him. And likewise, collectively the companions, although they share that reward among themselves because they didn't all teach everything, but whatever they taught, they also get the reward of all of that. So you have no need to do, like when some people say I do a qurbani for myself and a qurbani for the Prophet sallallahu Alaihi the Qurbani you do for yourself automatically goes to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Automatically, yani straight away, every single good deed that you do is automatically a copy of that reward is given to him. Because he is the one who taught you how to do it in the first place. And so on. And so inshallah, this is something to, I mean, to bear in mind. We're going to just do the first principle. We have 10 minutes left into the first principle and I have an important or, or a couple of important announcements to make about the essentials inshallah also so inshallah, don't leave too early but we have 10 minutes left I wanted to do the first and it is the most important of all of the principles the shaykh he says li al amal بِهَا الصَّلَاحُ وَالْفَسَادُ لِلْعَمَلُ Our Niyah. Our Niyah is a condition we already know what a condition is for every kind of action and the validity of salah or the invalidity, al-fasad, is dependent upon it in every action. Now this is ben- the Sheikh he says, anfa'u wa ajallaha. And he, anfa'u wa ajallaha. he says, "This principle is the most beneficial of all of the principles. And the most noble of all principles. Because every single area of knowledge relies upon intention. Now, notice the usuli words that the Shaykh uses. There are three words that we have covered in usul al fiqh in this poetry shartun, salahun, and fasad. Shart being a condition. Salah, validity, I any mean for the action to be valid, and fasad, I any mean for it to be invalid. And I really want to try to encourage this to link your knowledge. You know, like when you see the word shart, double underline it and like write, okay, this is shart. Do I remember the definition? Do I remember like because you're linking Islam. You know, we are studying Islam as separate pods. You know, like a, a, a little bit about usul al-fiqh, a little bit about Aqih, Like we're separating them. But in, in reality, in action, Islam is not separated into usul and fiqh and aqeedah and whatever. Islam is just Islam. So you need to make those ties between those different types of knowledge. You wrote, heard the word niyyah. Straight away, what are you thinking? أَرْبَعِينَ <laughs> You're thinking hadith, I know a hadith on niya. okay, I know a hadith on niya. this is talking about niya. I know shart, I did the definition for it, I know salah, I know fasad, I did the definition for those, I know, and you're linking the knowledge together. We study it separately to make it easy for you to understand, and then ideally you start bringing that knowledge together into something cohesive, to something which is one. And the reason this is the most beneficial and the most important of all of the principles is that every single act that you do is dependent upon your niyyah. There are principles that apply in 20% of circumstances. There are principles that apply in 50% of circumstances. There are principles that have exceptions to them. There are principles that apply in transactions. Principles that apply in aqidah. But there are very few principles that you can say apply in every single thing that you do from the first to the last of them. Aniyya is one of those. And there are two meanings of aniyya that we have to be aware of to understand it properly. The first is an niya as relates to or as it relates to who you are doing the action for. And this is the niya which is referenced in the statement of Allah Azza wa ma umiru illa liya'budu Allaha mukhlisina lahud-din wa yuqimus-salata wa yatuzzakata wa dhalika dinu qayyim." The niya which is al-ikhlas making the religion for Allah Azza wa alone and not making any partner with him not allowing a Riya showing off not allowing a Sum'a Riya is when you do something to be seen Sum'a is when you do something to be heard Not allowing Riya and Sum'a to enter into your deeds This is an-niyyah. This is a and the second kind of niyyah is that which distinguishes the, the acts of worship from each other. So for example, I stand in the saf here in the masjid. I face the qibla with wudu. I say, Allahu Akbar. I read Surah Al-Fatiha. I do my ruku' with its conditions, and my, my sujood with its conditions, and then I stand up, I pray another raka'ah, I do it again, then I finish with the tashahud, and I say, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. This prayer was, inshaAllah, according to the sunnah. Which prayer was it? The answer to that is, depending upon a niyyah Niyyah is what distinguishes That being Fajr, from that being Duha, or being Tahajjud, or being anything else. Yes, for for sure the time has an impact on that, but my Niyah is what makes that different from something else. I see somebody at the door, and he says, I'm a poor person, can you give me some money? So I take some money and I give it to him. First of all, my, the big portion of niyyah is did I do it for Allah or did I do it for someone else? Did I do it to show off or did I do it so people will say I'm generous? And then the second type of niyyah, was it zakah? Was it sadaqah? Was it something voluntary I was giving? Or was I giving it as zakah? Or was I giving it as an oath that I promised that the next poor person who asks me for money, I'm going to give it to him? And niyyah is what distinguishes that. The action is the same. The action is the same. And while we're talking about niyyah, I really want you to focus that we are talking about an action that is valid. We're not talking about a bid'ah and then saying niyyah is correct. We're talking about someone who does something, the action itself is correct. As in they, you know, they, they, they do the right movements. They copy the movements from the sunnah. They do the right sort of thing. They use the right method but what we're talking about here is let's take someone who's done an action with the right method and now let's ask what was that action was that action rewarded or not that depends upon and niyyah, depends upon their intention and the sheikh he says this enters into every single kind of knowledge he said, so the validity of the actions you do with your body and the actions you do with your wealth and the actions of the heart and the actions of the limbs are all dependent upon your niyyah and the, those actions becoming invalid And if those actions become invalid they become invalid primarily because of your niyyah and if your niyyah is wrong then they become invalid and if your niyyah is right they become valid the sheikh he said so if the niyyah is correct the statements and actions are correct and if the niyyah is corrupt then the statements and actions are corrupt. As the Prophet ﷺ said, Innamal wa Every action is according to intention and everyone will have the reward of what they intended. Now you notice this hadith, just to tie yourself into the science of hadith and other things. You notice that this hadith is the first hadith in Al-Arba'ina Nawawi. And it's the hadith that Al-Imam Al-Bukhari chose to start his Sahih, which is the most authentic book after the book of Allah Azzawajal. And it's a hadith that many, many scholars began their books with. That shows you how important this principle is to them. If this principle were not important to them, they would not have given it that level of importance. It's like they are saying to you, if you can understand this, everything else is secondary. This is the single most important principle in the whole of Islam. It's the single most important rule. It is the number one rule in Islam. إِنَّمَا amalu biniyat. The Sheikh says, A niyyah has two levels. The first of which is distinguishing a habit from an act of worship. The first of which is distinguishing a habit from an act of worship. Now, if you want to link this to what I said before, this is different to what I said before. I said there are two types of niyyah one is ikhlas and one is distinguishing things now the sheikh is talking only about within distinguishing things there are two levels of distinguishing things so put the niya which is ikhlas which is tawheed, aside for a second and focus on the niya which is the the niya of fiqh you know the niya of what makes duhar and asr what makes you know what makes the difference between qiyam al-layl and for example Witter or something like that What's the difference between Sadaqah and Zakah? The Sheikh said there are two Levels to this At a basic level You distinguish habits From Worship So for example If I'm not eating anything Because I'm on a diet That's not the same as me not eating anything Because I'm fasting People fast for medical reasons, people fast for health reasons, people fast to lose weight, people fast for you know, all sorts of reasons, to show solidarity with the poor or whatever. None of that is considered to be psalm in Islam. That might be a, a benefit of psalm, it might be like a side benefit of psalm, but it's not psalm in Islam. That's just called fasting or not eating. Someone who doesn't eat because they're poor. They can't afford food. It's not the same as a person who fasts. A sawm, a siyam. The siyam which brings you near to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They may do the exact same actions. There's a poor guy living in a drought. He didn't drink any water. He didn't eat any food. He didn't inhale anything or swallow anything. From Fajr until Maghrib. But if you ask him why, he says to you, Allah, well, there's a drought, we don't have any water, we don't have any food. So we ration our food and we, we just drink a little bit of water at night with what little we have. And uh, you know, we don't eat any food during the day. This person did all of the actions of Saum, but they didn't do any Saum. So the first thing that nia does is distinguish al min al-ibada, Habits from worship. How many times, I don't know about, it happens to me, I don't know if it happens to you, but when I wash my hands, and I only want to wash my hands, I have a habit of making wudu. It's just a habit, you know, like I'm washing my hands, and then I'll wash my mouth, and then I'll wash my face, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, I started making wudu. This is not wudu, and I cannot complete it as wudu. If I want to make wudu, I have to begin from The beginning, because I didn't intend to make wudu, I just got a habit of robotically, every time I wash my hands, I automatically start washing my mouth, and then I start washing my face, because it's like, it's habit. What makes the difference between a person making wudu, and a person who is just wants to cool down, and so they wash their face and their arms in the right order, and then they wash their feet, when you ask them, they say, well, I was really hot, I wanted to cool down. Niyya is what makes the difference between Al-Ada and Al-Ibadah between a habit or or a, a regular action and between an act of worship and the second is the second level of distinguishing is distinguishing some actions from others meaning distinguishing Zuhr from asr and time is not enough because Zuhr. I could pray asr at Zuhr time I could join between them the Prophet joined sometimes between Zuhr and asr if there was a need maybe I prayed Zuhr in a jama'ah and then I came to the masjid and they were praying Zuhr. so I joined dhuhr am I praying Zuhr or I'm praying nawafil I'm praying Nawafal, I'm praying, I'm praying behind the Imam who is praying Dhuhr, but my intention is that I'm praying a voluntary prayer because I already prayed Dhuhr. Like the one who prayed Asr, joining Dhuhr and Asr, and then he finished his job before, before the Jama'ah, before the Asr Jama'ah started. So he comes to the masjid and he prays Asr with the Jama'ah, even though he already prayed Asr before. So this person... What distinguishes asr from voluntary, from this, from zuhr, from... The actions are the same. Maybe even the time is the same. Maybe even the jama'ah is the same. But the niyyah distinguishes one from the other. And the sheikh said, from the types of niyyah or the levels of niyyah is al-ikhlas. As we said Sincerity for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I personally think the easiest way to understand it is that there are two types of niyyah. Sincerity for Allah and distinguishing between things. And then distinguishing between things can be broken into two types. Which is distinguishing between habits and worship. And then on a higher level, distinguishing between, or on a more, more detailed level, distinguishing between different types of worship which appear to be the same. Sadaqah and zakah look exactly the same. You take some money, you give some money, the money goes to the poor person, that they all look the same. But what makes it zakah? Your niyyah. What makes it sadaqah? Your niyyah. And then the sheikh, one of the, the really nice things he does is he goes on and gives examples. And we, we went over our time, so I'm not going not gonna to go too much. Just very quickly, most of the examples we have given So the Shaykh, for example, is just taking an example of sacrifice. There are lots of reasons why you sacrifice. You might sacrifice as Udhiya. Udhiya, yani the sacrifice of Eid al-Adha. You might sacrifice as a Hadi. So the people on Hajj, who do Hajj Tamattu' or they they do Quran, those people sacrifice an animal on the 10th day of the Hijjah. And that animal is not an Udhiyya It's not what Eid al-Adha is named after Eid adha is named after the animal that is killed one per household Or more in order to give to the poor people The Hajj is a hadi. It's the same animal in the same place, in the same location, in the same thing The only thing that makes that animal different from the other animal is that one of them Belongs to a Hajji who is making Hajj Tamattu' and one of them belongs to someone living in Makkah who is making then you have someone who made a mistake in the Hajj. For example, he killed, uh, uh, he killed an animal, he, killed, uh, he hunted an animal from the land animals. He also brings his animal on the same day in the same place and does exactly the same thing. Then you have someone who made a promise. On the day of Eid al-Adha, Billahi, I will sacrifice a camel. That camel is there too. The fourth camel. And it's still, they're all there together. Or the fourth sheep. Or the fourth, uh I mean, ram or whatever it is. And they're all standing there together. The only thing that makes those different from one another is an niyyah And so on. And there are many, many examples. In fact, the sheikh said that every single act of worship is an example for this rule. There is no act of worship except that this is an example for this rule. There are some issues that we will uh, deal with regarding niyyah, but I just want to mention one before we finish up, and then we have a quick course announcement, and that's it, inshallah. Um, before we finish up, in general, niyyah is best understood as an awareness of what you are doing. Some people think that niyyah is something you have to say. So you see them, they stand in the safh, they say, Allahumma inni nawaitu arba raka'atin khalfa hadha al imam." Oh Allah, I made intention for four raka'at behind this imam. Salat al dhuhr. I want to get your to see your face in Jannah. And I'm following this Imam. This is not from the Sunnah. Adibidah. We don't make our niyyah verbally unless there is a Sunnah for it to do verbally, which is in, for example, there is a Sunnah in Hajj and Umrah to say لَبَّيْكَ allahumma hajjan allahumma Umratan. Another mistake people make is They say, Okay, I don't say it verbally, I say it in my heart. So they sit in, the, you know, they stand there and they're like, Allahumma inni and the same thing, but they're just doing it in their heart. And it also is not according to the Sunnah. Niya means that you are aware of what you are doing, such that if I stopped you and said to you, Ya Abdullah, what prayer are you praying? You would say to me, I'm praying dhuhr. Who are you praying behind? I'm praying behind the imam. How many rakah are you going to pray? I'm going to pray four. If you can answer the question of what you are doing, that is your niyyah. Niyyah is not like, okay, I'm going to make wudu now. Wudu, wudu. I'm going to wash my hands, going to wash my mouth. That's not niyyah. Niyyah is not like you go over the action in your head. Niyyah is if somebody stopped you and said to you, what are you going to do now? You would say, I'm going to make wudu. How are you gonna make it? Well, I'm gonna wash my hands, I'm going wash my mouth, I'm gonna wash my nose, I'm gonna wash my face, I'm gonna wash my two arms, I'm wash my feet, fi- wipe over my head, wipe over my ears and wash my feet. If you can answer the question of what you're gonna do, that is your niyyah. When you don't have your niyyah, that means that you don't know what it is that you're gonna do or you're not prepared for that action. Such as that someone, you know, wakes up and says, uh, someone says to him, oh, you know, did you know it's Ramadan today? He says, Ramadan? Wallah, I missed the announcement. I didn't know. So this person doesn't have the niyyah for fasting. But it's not the case you have to wake up one minute before the fajr adhan and say, oh Allah, I'm going to fast today for your sake. I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to be intimate with my wife. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. That's not what it means to have a niyyah. Niyyah means you know what you are going to do. You have an awareness of what you're going to do. And that awareness is extremely slippery and extremely Difficult, especially when it comes to ikhlas Because you might have an awareness or a feeling That you're going to do this for Allah And the shaytan in a second can come along And remove that ikhlas and that sincerity And make it for something else So you must wrestle always with your, uh, with your niyyah There are other issues we want to cover in niya, which I've covered before. i tell you a couple of places you can find them. I had, when I first came to, to Dubai to visit where we did uh, Kitab al-Iman from Sahih Muslim. In there, there are some useful discussions on niya about what about when you make a niya for something and then you don't do it, or do you get rewarded for it or not, and things like that. That's, like, there's lots we can talk about here. You know, this is a big principle. And then on top of that, there are other things as well. Um, you know, we could talk about uh, differences in niyyah and things like that. There are, lots of, there are lots of issues. Also, the first hadith of al arbain and Nawawiyyah, which is on the Essentials uh, playlist, also has more discussion on uh, niyyah uh, than we're going to just cover here. But we want this from the point of view of a principle. We have a general principle now. The principle is that the validity or the invalidity of actions is based upon your intention. And that is a principle you can take with you in every act of worship that you do. Okay, bearing in mind that we've, we are 15 minutes or so over the time. Um, I want to cover a very, very quick a uh, couple of course announcements. There may be some confusion over two things that I would like to clarify. The first one is what is going to happen next week. Is there going to be an exam? Is there not going to be an exam? Is the what is the exam going to be on and whatever? I believe, if I'm not mistaken, last week is our last Friday. It is the 21st, I believe, and it's our last uh, Friday for this module. Because of that, and because I'm travelling, we're not able to give you an exam which we would normally give you the week after, right? Normally it would be you finish your four weeks and then you do your exam the week after, right? But there is no week after. this is the end of the year so for that reason we will do the exam on that week we will do the exam on the same week however i will not include anything from the fourth week and anything beyond what i've just said now nothing will be included in the exam any the exam is up to what we included what we said today the last bit about anniya that is the exam is up to there now the reason is we did have an option to give you the exam the week after. But there are two problems with that. Number one, I won't be here to answer questions for you. So if anyone gets confused, there would be nobody to answer. And the other thing is you aren't planned for it. You know, we told you that it would be the last week, so maybe some of you got holidays planned, maybe some of you are traveling. So instead of doing that, we're gonna stick to the original plan. We're gonna have the exam next week, but the exam will only include what is up to, what we finished today. It will not include anything from Next week. In fact, the exam will be before the class, as always, you know, the exam will be first and then we will, we will do principle number two, principle number three, so you don't have to worry about that, inshallah. That's, I think, the fairest thing we can do. The second thing to confuse a few people and uh, probably, you know, you have, uh, that's probably understandable, is the marking scheme for the exams um, in terms of the total marks. At the moment, the way the essentials works is that there are 100 marks available for every module, not for every subject, I for every module. The module is 12, 12 weeks. There are 100 marks available in that 12 weeks, not counting the home assignment. And there are 100 marks available in exams. Some exams will have a slightly higher mark than others because clearly you cannot add up th- 33 and 33 and 33 makes 99, yeah? So some might be 34, occasionally some might be even more, like some might be 40 and and 30, for example, and 30 or something like that, if that adds up to 100, and so on. So don't worry if there's some fluctuation. It irons itself out eventually. I try not to do it. My aim is to try to make it as balanced as possible, but sometimes it, it so happens that some subjects end up with a little bit more in terms of marks than the others, the way the exam marking works out, inshallah. So that's to bear in mind. Home assignments are marked in credits, meaning that you have a maximum of three credits available for every home assignment. You don't receive a mark like 99 out of 100 or 20 out of 30, you receive a credit mark. One credit, usually I have a marking scheme. For example, in the last home assignment, which is marked and done, um, I gave one credit for presentation and summarizing the content well, one credit I gave for um, following the you know maybe I remember at the top of my head but following the, the rules that you were given the, the word limit and all of that stuff that you were given and present and you know like covering the books that you were told to cover and for one the quality of the argument that you presented the, the maybe the, the proofs or whatever you would get one credit for each so if you did it perfectly well and you handed it in on time you would get three credits If you handed it in late, you'd probably get two credits. If you handed in a 5,000-word essay, you know who you are. Yes, some people did do that. When I asked you for 700 words, you will not get three credits. You would get, for example, two credits. If you handed in late and handed in a 5,000-word essay, then probably you would only get one credit. Because in reality, like so, you get between one and three credits, depending on your home assignment, when you handed it in, and and what have you. That's the way it works right now. Maybe subject to change in the future as we refine and improve, but right now exams are marked out of 100 in every module, uh, and that means that some of your exams may be slightly higher than others. The website has now been corrected. That means if you look at your marks on the website, you may see a slight change in the... It, you may have before th- seen it was out of 34 and now it's out of 35 or 33 or 32, we've fixed it. Yani the mar- inshallah nobody lost any marks, don't worry, anyway, everyone, everyone got, if anything you gained marks, you didn't lose any, but inshallah it does work out correctly so that hopefully we can continue uh, this way in the course. That's what I was asked to announce uh, insha'Allah and please do come for next week, Inshallah it will be our, our last uh, week before we resume. Resumption dates will be announced on Kalima's website because at the moment I can't say for you for certain I believe it will be at some point in September But as for exactly when we will wait for that to be announced inshallah Please keep in touch with the website and the information on it because we do update it we do change things uh, But I just wanted to explain that to you guys so you all understand and Allah knows best salatu wa wa mark only for each module or each exam no? for example if it are three mm-hmm. exams so how you that is a good question i don't know the answer to that question uh, i would have to consult with the guys who are taking care of the examinations